We begin with the letter A. A is for... M is for murder. E is for... Danger! And, uh... Dodge. With... Monster. Help! Love me and be... Please! Help! Yeah. Welcome back to another episode of the Is For Podcast. I am Danger, and I'm here with my non-animated co-host... You know, it's I, I feel like it's only proper to say he's not bad. He's just drawn that way. Sarge, say hello. Howdy, y'all. How you doing? <laughs> and uh, the guy who can only escape handcuffs when it's funny, not convenient. Monster. Hi. <laughs> Happy to be here. <laughs> Monster's, Monster's getting over being sick, so he, uh, he sounds like a late-night jazz DJ from a radio station. So give us a good line, Monster. Something. You are listening to WKR Smooth Jazz all night long. Uh, just three call letters. <laughs> <laughs> that way uh, I can't be sued for yep. using someone else's oh, that's, that's fair. That's you know, fair. I at least was going to give him a little bit more and be like, you know, B-rated movie announcer. Okay. You know, the voiceover guy. Yeah. Coming this fall. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but the problem is because I'm so congested, I can't like take a deep breath and say more than a couple words at a time. <laughs> That's why I said B-rated movies. <laughs> yeah. So hopefully, hopefully you can get out at least a couple words at a time to you know give us your input on this. But tonight on the Is oh, for podcast, we're going to be talking the letter W, and W is for Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Now, Sarge, tell me. About your opinion, fondness, disfondness, hatred. I don't know. I I don't know how you can hate this movie because it's a great movie. Tell me about who framed Roger Rabbit in your world. You mean whether I liked it or disliked it? I actually love the movie. Yeah, it's great. I mean, and I just realized, I just realized you have a Christmas background and it's not Christmas. Uh, Anyway, go on, go on. (laughs) So, who framed Roger Rabbit was my first, was the first movie I ever saw that incorporated animation and live action together yep and the part of the movie that really like got got me was like the extreme sexual side of that movie while it was slapsticky and funny jessica rabbit right in that in, in that movie was a precursor to like uh cool world yes i don't I, I don't know if i would say it was a precursor or if they just used some of the same things and just cool world had a uh, hypersexual cartoon <laughs> about itself, but a cool world was a great movie. But uh, yes, um, Jessica Rabbit was a, uh, a, a, how do we say this uh, politely? Uh, she was, um, she was a very attractive cartoon character. Monster. She was, I was going well to say drawn. she was a, a bombshell that led a lot of young boys down a particular path. (laughs) Yes. Some into realizing that they liked women, some into realizing Mm. they like cartoons. (laughs) Yes. Cartoon. Exactly. (laughs) You know, they said Jessica rabbit was modeled off of the old school. And this is why I have this, this image up behind me. It's a, it's one of the old school pinup girls. Mm -hmm. So they modeled her movements and the way she stands and sits like the old school pinup girls. I actually have this in my notes for this episode, but uh, they actually made her boobs go opposite a lot of times of how they would naturally move for a buxom lass. And uh, that, yeah, 
fun, fun yeah, boob, and, fun boob animation. Anyway, and her proportions are you know one hundred percent impossible to have in real life. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm pretty sure that digestive tract was not <laughs> was not great at her her waist. But monster, go on, tell us your Who Framed Roger Rabbit feelings. So this is one that I had on VHS when I was pretty young. And it's one I watched a lot when I was a kid. It fell into that PG category of a little bit over my head, but I loved the style. I loved the look. I thought the the ridiculousness of Roger mixed with Bob Hoskins' straight man kind of vibe was hilarious. Um, I, I was a big fan of slapstick comedy when I was a kid, so... It worked for me. I, I watched it all the time when I was a kid. A lot of it went over my head. I've I've watched it since since I've gotten a little bit older, and there's a couple of things I definitely missed when I was you know six, seven, eight years old. But oh yeah, classic, classic. Uh, there was a there was a lot of things that just went over your head when you were a kid. As an adult, you cop way more, but you know that I think that was a you know a touchstone of a lot of movies, you know, to at least make it entertaining for the parents to watch. But, you know, yeah, as an adult, I, I was, it's just as much fun to watch. Yeah, because I was going to say growing up, a lot of the stuff that I watched when I was young was stuff that I was watching with my dad. And my me and my dad are both laughing, but usually at two different things. Right. You know? Right. Um, but but yeah, this was one of them for sure. We both like this one. So I, uh, you know, I watched this movie and I was a kid. Um, it came out in uh, 88. And so, you know, I don't remember watching it when I was three, but, you know, I watched it. <laughs> I watched it, you know, years and years and many times later. But I uh, now, I, but Sarge probably saw it when it first came out, right? Because you would have been about 14 at that time. When did it come out? Uh, 88. Yeah, it came out. 88. No, I was I was six. Thank you. Oh, pardon me. I, OK, so the biggest thing I was confused about is because. My dad and I, we've always had music in common to talk about. And so when I uh, was learning about Phil Collins, I was, you know, for longer than I care to actually admit, I was always wondering why Phil Collins was in Who Framed Roger Rabbit because he and Bob Hoskins are identical. <laughs> <laughs> they look just alike. So to me, Bob Hoskins was Eddie Valiant. <laughs> or, or, okay. uh, or, um, I can see that. Phil Collins was was. Eddie Valiant. So anyway, let me let me set the stage for you guys. Let me. So before you set the stage, can I tell you what I just found? Oh yeah, because it's totally irrelevant. But I was all I was all in character, bringing bringing that funk, bringing the energy. Go on, go on, Sarge. (laughs) I just I just scoured the interwebs, and I have found out that um, that Jessica Rabbit's measurements are attainable, but extremely rare to pull off because she is five foot nine without heels. Has a 19.5 inch waist, 40 double F breasts, 38 inch hips, and have a hip to waist ratio of 0.53 and a total weight of 160 pounds. And they even break it down to say that each double F breast weighs 25 pounds, so 50 of that 160 is boobs alone. Uh, she got some back pain. I was getting ready <laughs> to say, like, she, her back would snap in half. Yeah. So there you go. That's that's the only uh, that's the only thing I have to add. She doesn't have much waist to hold up, but you know, maybe all that. No, no, that's just um while physically possible, 
physically improbable. All right. I was not able to find the exact year that the movie was was set in, but it's 1940s. <laughs> That's all I could find was 40s, mm-hmm. which there are certain, uh, certain things that don't quite make sense about the year placement of things. But anyway, 1940s Los Angeles, world where humans and cartoons coexist. Detective Eddie Valiant has hated tunes since his brother was killed by one. Eddie gets hired by cartoon producer R.K. Maroon to investigate an adultery scandal involving Jessica Rabbit, the sultry wife of Maroon's biggest star, Roger Rabbit, and Marvin Acme, owner of Acme Corporations in Toontown. This is very hard to do while I see you guys (laughs) changing stuff. (laughs) Sorry. But when Marvin Acme is found murdered, the villainous Judge Doom vows to catch and destroy Roger. The only person who can prove Roger's innocence is tune-hating Eddie Valiant, washed-up alcoholic private detective who is reluctantly forced into helping Roger hide in his apartment. It's up to Eddie to clear Roger's name and find the real evildoer before the villainous and power-hungry Judge Doom goes on a mission to bring Roger to justice. Guys, dun, dun, dun. That, that took me much longer to put together than I'm happy to say, but I did it. So, all right. Stellar synopsis. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So that that's the majority of the plot that I'm going to actually give you guys tonight because there's so much other stuff that went into this movie and making the movie and all that, you know, if I were to break down the entire plot, as I have done in the past, it, this would be a stupid long episode. And so not going to jump into it. Anyway, directed by Robert Zemeckis, it was based on Who Censored Roger Rabbit by Gary K. Wolf. It's produced by Frank Marshall, Robert Watts, the production companies behind it, Touchstone Pictures, and Amblin Entertainment. It was released June 22nd of 1988. Do you know anything about that book? Somewhat. I mean, a lot of it from doing the research for this, which I didn't actually put too much of the book stuff in here for it. Okay. Well, we'll get to the book stuff and by all means hit me with what you got as far as that. So on, on one side, I see, I see Jessica rabbit's hip behind uh, Sarge. And on the other side, I see her, uh, her bosom (laughs) behind. Okay. In my defense, what I found was while Sarge was talking about the proportions, I found the picture of a, supposedly the real life Jessica rabbit. And I was trying to set the background so you could see like her entire figure and how weird it looks on a human. Um, but that's the only part that's in my background. So uh, I'll probably change that here in a minute. <laughs> ah, you know what? It could be worse. <laughs> so, all right. I want to run through the casting of things. Now we talked a bit about Bob Hoskins was uh, Eddie Valiant. Steve Martin was considered for the role along with Bill Murray, Robert Redford, Jack Nicholson, Harrison Ford, Ed Harris, Sylvester Stallone, Eddie Murphy, Chevy Chase, Danny DeVito, John Travolta, Tom Hanks, Mickey Rourke, Richard Gere, Robin Williams, Michael Keaton, Gene Hackman, Joe Pesci, and Robert De Niro. Harrison Ford, was Spielberg's first choice, but his price was too high. (laughs) Chevy Chase was the second choice, but he was not interested. (laughs) Um, Bill Murray didn't, didn't catch the phone call 
So I don't know if you guys know how Bill Murray gets his roles, but Bill Murray does not have an agent. Bill Murray has a phone that that people have to call into. And if he if if he decides to call you back because he still has an answering machine, he'll call you back. If he doesn't want to, he doesn't. But he missed the phone call. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so then I, I heard that somewhere else for a different movie, too, I think. Yeah, he, yeah. he's actually gone through a couple. Actually, Bill Murray uh, <laughs> took Garfield because he thought he was working with the Cohen brothers, but he was just working with another guy, the last name Cohen. And uh, <laughs> he ended up taking the, the Garfield job for that. So out of out of all the names you said, I think Harrison Ford, but like Harrison Ford now, like Harrison Ford back then, he would have been too cool. He yep. needs to be like the angry, old, bitter jerk that he is now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, this was when he was, you know, uh, post Star Wars or like middle of Star Wars. Um, the fugitive. Yeah. Um, and uh, Indiana Jones and all. So, yeah. yeah see, he's still, been, he's still too like actiony and handsome. Like he right. needs to be like the old crotchety guy that he is now. Can so, you imagine like Sylvester Stallone? Oh no, no, like every, every one of those actors, I, I can't imagine in it, but there is one that was considered for it that I didn't mention, but Leslie Nielsen was actually considered for it. And Leslie Nielsen was actually a serious actor before he took airplane. And so I think Leslie Nielsen may have been able to do it. Leslie Nielsen had that straight man timing that I think he would have been perfect for it. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that would have been cool. Yeah, I just can't pick picture anybody else playing the hero other than Bob Hoskins and the person playing the villain as Christopher Lloyd. All right, we'll get we'll get to Judge Doom after this this little tidbit. So Bob Hoskins said that his son wouldn't speak to him for about two weeks after seeing the movie because he was pissed off that his dad worked with Mickey Mouse. Bugs Bunny and didn't introduce him. <laughs> <laughs> and how old was his son? Do you know? I, I didn't I didn't find how old his son was, but he was probably like twenty-four. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk Judge Doom. So we all know the great Christopher Lloyd got the role. But Sting, John Voigt, and Arnold Schwarzenegger were considered. Christopher Lee turned down the role. Mm. Tim Curry auditioned for the role. But Robert Zemeckis, Steven Spielberg, and Michael Eisner, who was the CEO when, when the casting and all was happening, uh, found his, his portrayal, his performance, too scary, too terrifying. Which Really? Yeah. Um, which I also learned that Tim Curry was uh, up for the voice of the Joker in Batman Animated Series, but it was a mix of uh, they thought he was too scary for it, but then he was also doing another WB show and they thought it would might be too difficult for him to do both and too similar and whatnot. So, yeah. Well, it has been well documented on this program, my affection for Christopher Lee. Yes. So of course that would have been fantastic, but you know, yes, actually, if you're not aware of monsters, love of Christopher Lee, Listen to his top 10 from the V is for Vampire episode. I've been told that that top 10 list is uh, entertaining. It is. I don't remember it, so <laughs> I'll take your word for it. All right. So Charles Fleischer was uh, the voice of Roger the Ra- or Roger Rabbit, Bay of the Cab, 
Greasy and Psycho. Greasy and Psycho are two of the weasels. So to help Hoskins' performance, Charles Fleischer um, actually would be on set delivering lines in full costume, like in overalls, rabbit ears and all. And when he would walk around the back lots of of the studio, he would hear people talk about how bad the effects were going to be of that rabbit movie. <laughs> and, and not knowing that he wasn't actually that in the movie. Have you seen photos like behind yep. the scenes, yep. like clips of him walking around? Yeah. Yeah, it it definitely if that was what they were like actually going to do, it would yep. have been horrendous. <laughs> so Alan Tilburn as RK Maroon, this was his uh last movie before he died, December seventeenth, two thousand three at eighty five. Lou Hirsch as the voice of Baby Herman, and he was actually originally gonna be the voice of Benny the Cab, but then he was switched to Baby Herman. Do you guys know who voiced Jessica Rabbit and was uncredited for it? Okay, cool. I know know I've heard it, but I can't think of it. (laughs) Kathleen Turner did the voice of Jessica Rabbit and was was uncredited. And Amy Irving was the singing voice of Jessica Rabbit. Uh, She was based on four movie femme fatales, if you will. And Gary K. Wolf, the writer of the book, had picked uh, Red and Tex Avery's Vixen from Red Riding Hood. Animation director Richard Williams said he based Jessica mostly on Rita Hayworth and Gilda and then used Veronica Lake for the peekaboo hair. You know, if you don't know who those people are, that's perfectly fine because they're older actresses and all. And at the suggestion of Robert Zemeckis, the look, the trademark of Lauren Bacall was given to her. And Mel Blanc, who voiced Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Porky Pig, Tweety Bird, and Sylvester the Cat, this was his final film before he died a year later and was no longer was no longer voicing the, the Looney Tunes. So, which whoever took over the voices of them, you know, obviously are doing a fine job. But Mel Blanc was, uh, was a great. So, oh, absolutely. Now, we know that Robert Zemeckis was a director on this. You guys want to take a stab at who, who was another director that was uh, offered to direct? And it's not one that I would have ever picked. And this isn't a test. I mean, I'm just, you know. Just, just, <laughs> I'm about ready to say, I fail. <laughs> well, I'm trying to think of some directors from that era, era that would be kind of odd. Maybe like Joe Dante? Nope. Nope, not Joe Dante. It was Terry Gilliam. Oh, okay. So he found the project too technically challenging. That's why he didn't take it. And then he uh, later said, uh, pure laziness on my part. I completely regret that decision. <laughs> but at the same time, with the weird movies that Terry Gilliam makes, I can't imagine that he would have made a a good Roger Rabbit movie. So it'd have been different. Yes, yes, it would have. All right. So Robert Zemeckis tried for the job as director in 1982, but Disney turned him down because his two previous f- films, "I Want to Hold Your Hand" and "Used Cars," had been just box office flops, disasters. They were just just terrible movies. But he got hired to direct in 85 after the success of Romance in the Stone and Back to the Future. After that, they were like, yeah, okay, you, you can come on back. So, And then being friends with Steven Spielberg did not hurt anything at all, by any means. No. no. I don't think anybody's taken a hit in their career from being friends with uh, Mr. Spielberg. So Richard Williams was hired to direct the animation portion of things. 
And Zemeckis wanted the film to bring together Disney's high-quality animation and Warner Brothers, Tex- or, uh, Warner Brothers characterization and Tex Avery humor. So I think it worked well for all of those things. All right. The development. How the movie came to be. So Walt Disney purchased the rights to Who Censored Roger Rabbit in 81. Ron W. Miller, then president of Disney, saw a great opportunity in it and was like, hey, this could be great. And so he hired uh, Jeffrey Price and Peter Seaman to write the script. So Peter who? Peter Seaman. Yep. I uh, I was trying to move past it so you didn't concentrate on, on. The, the eight-year-old portion of your brain. Come so, on, Sarge. You're better than that. No, I'm not. Uh, I mean, fair enough. Fair enough. You know what? Maybe he was a sailor. You know, he maybe he was a sailor, and so he was a man of the sea. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Jeffrey Price and Peter Sperm were hired to direct or to write the script. <laughs> Thank you. Much better. All right. All right. Sorry. So they were at two drafts, and they began in 1981. In 1983, or between 1981 and 1983, with those two two drafts, they actually put together some test footage. Paul Rubens was the original voice of Roger Rabbit. Mm -hmm. Peter Rende is Eddie Valiant, and Rusty Taylor as Jessica Rabbit. I I cannot imagine either one of them, but I think Paul Rubens might have been a fun choice for the final. There are a couple of audio clips. I, I can't remember... It was just like some test footage that they did where Paul Rubens does the voice. Mm-hmm. And it's not that much different yep. than the final voice. But, you know, being a big Pee-wee, Pee-wee's Playhouse fan, I would have loved that. I, yep. I would have. That would have made me love the film even more. I'm not really sure why they didn't go with, like, stay with Paul Rubens. But if you go, like I said, if you, like, Google it. it. There's a couple little lines of test footage, and he sounds good. Yeah. No, actually, I, I think that uh, Paul Fleischer actually ended up using the Paul Rubens voice as as kind of inspirational what to do with the character's voice. So, yeah. All right. Then after '83 and the test footage was produced, it kind of entered development hell, and then it was brought back in '85 when Michael Eisner took over CEO of Disney. So after Michael Eisner brought it back. It pretty much just took off and streamlined and started actually becoming the movie that we have, the movie that we yes. we came to know and love. Producing it was Spielberg, Frank Marshall, and Kathleen Kennedy. They were approached to produce Who Framed Roger Rabbit alongside Disney, not with Disney, if you will. And so they were given a $50 million budget, and then Disney went, no, that's too expensive. <laughs> so they went, Here's money. No, 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 no. Give, give it back. Then they were pretty much on a shoestring budget at that point of thirty million. Yeah, just a pure shoestring. A, a measly thirty. Yeah, it ended up creeping back up. But we'll talk about that. So yeah. they greenlit what was at the time the most expensive movie ever, which I didn't know that. Yeah, thirty million was ambitious. Thirty million was big back then. Thirty million's um, pretty standard at this point in. in in the world of movies. I was going to so. say 30 That's million. That's considered low-end. Low. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's, well, um, uh, put it this way. For a studio like Disney, yeah, that's oh yeah. low. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Warner Brothers, even. Yeah. That matter. Sure, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like 30 million is kind of like um, independent movie budget 
you know, it's uh it's not really it's not really big now. But I mean thirty million's nothing, you know, but no yeah. it's more than I got in my pocket. Just just saying. You know, if I had more than thirty million, probably wouldn't be here. But you know, this is where we are. No, no, we would still be here. It would be where we would be tomorrow morning would be different. Yes. <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> that, that's fair. That's fair. So anyway, uh a chairman over at Walt Disney, Jeffrey uh Katzenberg who's had his name in, in several places, oh, yeah. his hands in different stuff. So different movies and all. He actually was arguing for the movie to get more money, but you know, eventually he was voted out cause he was just a, a chairman, but he was like, you know, this is a movie that could save Disney's animation, which at that point was pretty much falling apart. This was actually before the Disney Renaissance of, of things. So the animation Renaissance Spielberg's contracted included an extensive amount of creative control and a large percentage of the box office profits. Smart move, in, yeah. in my opinion. Just So Disney kept all merchandising rights, but Spielberg got a percentage of those box office numbers, which, good on Spielberg's part, because uh, Spielberg needs more money. That's exactly what he needs. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Spielberg went and convinced Warner Brothers, Fleischer Studios, King Features Syndicate, Felix the Cat Productions, Turner Entertainment, and Universal pictures to lend their characters to appear in the film. That's how all those characters actually ended up in there together. Nice. I always kind of wondered, but old Spielberg did it again. But there was there there was a uh, a caveat that the uh major characters, only some of them, had to have equal screen time. And so they solved this by putting them on the screen at the same time. For instance, Donald Duck and Daffy Duck dueling pianos, and then uh, Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny, you know, parachuting when uh, Bob Hoskins is out in um, in Toontown, and that okay. So this movie did something that I didn't appreciate as much when I was a kid, but I certainly do as an adult. There was an immense amount of wordplay that was great, and this was one of them where they were like, "Hey, you know, you're falling. You might need a parachute." And he was like, well, do you have one? He's like, yeah, I got a spare. And then hands him a spare tire. <laughs> and it's like, that's not going to help. It's, it was a little mean for Mickey, but you know, whatever. I'll take it. Speaking of which, one of those jokes that I didn't get when I was a kid. And now I will actually say this to people uh, like in, in real life. When uh, Valiant is at the bar and he orders a scotch on the rocks. Yep. And it comes with actual I rocks mean, in his glass. Yeah. yeah. So now... Uh, even it doesn't even matter what I'm ordering, but I'll say, you know, blah, blah, blah on the rocks. And I mean, ice. Yep. <laughs> There's a lot of things that happened in that film. Like as an adult nowadays, I look back on and it's like, there's no apologies needed Mm-mm. for anything done in that movie. No, um, exact. Like the one where, uh, Jessica rabbits talking to, uh, Eddie to, to Eddie. And she's like, do you know how hard it is to be a woman that looks like me? And then Eddie Valiant goes, do you know how hard it is on a man to look at a woman that looks like you? Oh, <laughs> uh, like they they push so many so many boundaries, especially for a uh, a PG movie that was you oh know, yeah completely aimed at kids. Just push that line harder and harder. And Monster, it goes back to what you're saying that you know you and your dad were laughing at the same time, but for different reasons altogether. And yeah. I was, I was laughing at the the silly rabbit bouncing all over the place, and my dad is laughing at the innuendos and the stuff that's mm-hmm. flying over my head. Oh yeah, and and the silly rabbit bouncing around. Yes. Yeah. All right. 
apart from the agreement of them sharing screen time or getting equal screen time, and that didn't apply to all characters. Uh, like, there's one scene where Tweety Bird has, like, a whole scene by herself. And I don't know if you remember, that's where Eddie was hanging on to the window mm-hmm. and she's, like, picking his fingers off. Yeah. So it only applied to the main to the main characters. But Warner Brothers and the various other companies were not involved in the production of Roger Rabbit. But executives at Warner Brothers expressed displeasure <laughs> at the animators using the Daffy design by Bob Clampett. And demanded they use the design by Chuck Jones. I don't really know the difference between the two. Like, Bob Clampett's a little bit older style. Or Chuck Jones is a little bit newer style. But it's Daffy Duck. Shut up. You know. I, I think it's that, uh, what do they call it? Rubber band animation. Yeah. Like, the okay. they, they wanted the one that's a little bit more uh, loosey, loosey-goosey. Who was know? it? Chuck Jones and who? Bob Clampett. In response to this... Zemeckis had separate artists animate Daffy using Jones' design to satisfy Warner Brothers and then use Clampett's design in the final film. Just, <laughs> just, it was like, you know what, screw it. I feel like it, when you're somebody that is uh, helming a film that is backed by Spielberg, you just pretty much go, you know what? I got balls bigger than you, and I'm just going to run with it and just do what I want. So, I'm, I'm looking at the side by side comparison of the Daffy Ducks, r- respectively draw, drawn by Chuck Jones and Bob Clampett. Mm-hmm. And you remember the like the slapstickish Daffy Duck? Yeah, like yeah, he yeah. had the white stripe on his neck and his tongue always hanging out of his mouth, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Right. That's that's one iteration of it, and then the one that we know today where. He's always messing with Bugs Bunny is a newer adapt- uh, adaptation. Mm-hmm. So, okay, thank you for clearing that up. I appreciate. it. I just looked. Yeah, it's like I didn't know there were two different Daffy Ducks. You get which me? was which? Yeah, I just looked uh, at quick pictures of them and just moved on from it. So, uh, the Chapel. Uh, I'm sorry, the Tex Avery Bob Clampett Daffy Duck is the silly one, and the uh, Fritz Freeling. Chuck Jones Daffy Duck is the more serious one. Okay, got it. All right, so Price and, and uh, Mr. Sperm, as we're going to refer to him from here on out for you, Sarge, were brought back once Spielberg and Zemeckis were both hired to finish writing the movie because they didn't finish those scripts. They just, you know, tried to put them together, but didn't actually finish it out, and then things took a different turn when they actually got all the other cartoon characters on board and got the other studios to agree to it. So... For inspiration, they studied the work of Walt Disney and Warner Brothers cartoons from the golden age of American animation, which is roughly from uh, from all different places I could find, 1870 to 1900. The Cloverleaf streetcar subplot was inspired by Chinatown, the movie, the Jet Nicholson movie. Price and, and Seaman, or Mr. Sperm, um, said that the red car plot, suburb expansion, urban and political corruption really did happen. So this is, in a way, a sequel to Chinatown. But this is also a whole movie that if you want to look at it a certain way, and people in recent time has, as I've dug through uh, so much of this that I did not intend to, this movie is a uh, an allegory, if you will, for racism. Hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. Now, I, mm-hmm. I can I can see it, but it, uh, it, it's a it's a a great movie. Shut up, people. <laughs> I mean, uh, quit trying to read more into it. Yeah, and I think it, it not necessarily as 
definitive as racism, but just the way we treat people that are different than us, you know, yeah. the way that, you know, Eddie Valiant has this preconceived uh, concept of cartoon characters because of his brother and what happened there and everything. And so he automatically has this distrust and dislike of them. Um, you know, that doesn't have to be an allegory for just racism, but just how we feel xenophobia in general, you know, yeah. like how you were saying how it's sort of like Chinatown. It kind of gets lost. I think like take the cartoony stuff out of it and it is a great film noir, you yeah. know, and I think like people forget like the detective movie aspect of it is great like even without the comedy and the silly part it would have worked well as a drama yeah monster this is where i'm going to kind of uh let you run with what you know about the book because um okay in wolf's novel the who censored roger rabbit the tunes were comic strip characters not movie stars so the whole thing about roger being movie star and jessica rabbit and all that none of that really happened in his book his book was like you know, the Sunday paper comic strip characters. What do you have on, on the book? Well, that part of it, the fact that they weren't like actual famous cartoon characters, like yep. Bugs Bunny and stuff. They were from the comic strip. But the other part was the, the whole genie thing. Um, there's actually like, I don't remember exactly the relationship, but there's a genie in the book that helps solve the crime or whatever. And if I'm not mistaken, it's a little more violent. It's, it's definitely not like a kid friendly thing dealing with comic strip characters, as opposed to like silly, goofy cartoon characters all automatically makes it a little more adult oriented. But yeah, I want to say that there's some, like some violent moments and stuff that obviously they nixed for the kid version. Yeah. Yeah. All right. There were some changes in the writing process of things. So Price and Seaman were not really sure about who to make the villain of the story. And so they actually wrote a couple different versions where Jessica Rabbit and Baby Herman were the villain, respectively, in the in the versions. So they made their final decision to create the Judge Doom character, which Judge Doom, I don't know if you guys remember the dip that no. yeah the dip do we all remember the little cartoon shoe that he was dipping yes. down yeah, yeah yeah that is traumatizing it uh it was and uh you know one of the things that that was missed as a kid uh the first time or the first 20 times around that i only picked up later on is that you know judge judge doom had to wear the the glove because well as we know he was a cartoon character so do we know what the dip? Didn't know it at the time. No, no, we did not. Ooh. Do we yeah. know what the dip was? They said it in the movie, but if you don't, it's no big deal. It was a mix. Uh, go on. Yeah, go on. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. no. It was I a mix. Is a mix of turpentine, acetone, and benzene. Do we know what this mixture is used for? Isn't that for like paint removal? Yeah, it's actually what would be yeah. used to remove paint from uh, from animation cells. Which mm-hmm. I thought was kind of a cool thing that they actually used that as the thing that would actually kill cartoon characters. Right. So, um, Sarge, you you got that look like you're you're biting to say something. 
No, no, I'm I'm enjoying this conversation. This is like I'm flashing back to this movie. I'm getting lost in the sauce. I just bought the book. I'm ready to go. Did you really just buy the book? I just bought the book for two dollars and ninety nine cents. All right, cool. After cool. you read it, pass it along. I want to read it too. It's on my Kindle. Yeah, wow. um, yeah, you're one of those people. Wow. Okay. So well, I'm not spending thirty bucks on it. Otherwise, I gotta I gotta be able to smell the pages. Yeah. I'm kind you can't of, I'm, smell anything right now. No, it's true. You can't. But I'm with that's, Monster that's on it. I, uh, I like I like to hold a book. I'm not big on reading on the screen. But, yeah. all right. Zemeckis compared Judge Doom's dip to Hitler's final solution. Yeah. Your director sees your villain as Hitler. <laughs> so, And uh, Judge Doom was originally in the script supposed to have a vulture on his shoulder, an animated vulture. But it was scrapped because they wanted to save time. And they would have taken too much to animate. But the Vulture did make a return because they put out a uh, like Gumby-like bendable figure and it had a Vulture with it. So uh, they never really explained what it was. It was like a Gumby, like the bendable, like no elbow or articulate. Yeah. What are you like? Because I'm I'm referencing Gumby, uh, something from like your childhood or, you know. I just haven't heard the word Gumby in forever. That's another one me and my dad used to watch all the time. I loved Gumby and Pokey, the Blockheads. Oh, mm-hmm. Great oh, yeah. show. Great show. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Doom was also supposed to have uh, a suitcase with uh, 12 small animated kangaroos to act as his jury. And each one would have a Joey pop out of its, of its pouch. And they would hold up the letters, guilty. You know, they would spell out guilty. That's how he would deliver but it was scrapped for the Toon Patrol. I had no idea what all their names were, but they were uh, supposed to be like a satirization of the Seven Dwarfs. Doc, Grumpy, Happy, Sleepy, Bashful, Sneezy, and Dopey. But instead it was stupid, smart-ass, greasy, wheezy, and psycho. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I need to uh, use some of those tomorrow, some of those names. But anyway, <laughs> but then there were two more, Slimy and Sleazy, and they were written out of the script. Uh, all right. So let's talk about the ink and paint club, which never actually existed, but this is going to go back to what, what we hit on just a little bit earlier, the whole allegory for racism thing. So it was actually created, built, designed everything to look like the Harlem cotton club, which if you think about it, the ink and paint club, when Eddie goes to the club, do you know what the doorman says? No, come in. no tunes allowed. Mm-hmm. But who's working the club? All mm-hmm. tunes. It's a tune performing, which was very common in the, uh, you know, in the forties uh, and fifties and all is to, you know, not have uh, to have a club where they don't allow black people in, but then they have black people working the bar and the, you know, the stage and all. So judge doom in the, one of the original scripts was supposed to be the hunter that killed Bambi's mother. I did read that, and that nice. that's pretty funny. Yeah. So you were originally supposed to hate <laughs> Judge Doom from the onset because he he gave you your first dose of uh, of childhood trauma from an animated movie. Of course, I didn't really give did two shits not, about Bambi. So. About what say, I did not cry at Bambi. At yeah, all. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't really care for Bambi at all. Still don't. Don't really care. Just I don't know that I've ever seen Bambi from start to finish. You've made it this far. You're going to be okay. I promise. So, all right. 
And Benny the Cab, in a uh, an early script, was supposed to be a Volkswagen Beetle. And they changed it to a taxi cab. You remember that part where uh, Judge Doom was being compared to Hitler and Hitler's final solution? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the Volkswagen Beetle was a uh, Hitler mobile. <laughs> I didn't find anything saying that that's why they changed it, but I have a theory. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> there, there are a couple points within within the movie that I do want to talk about, and we've already hit on a couple of them. But the part where Eddie hides Roger at a bar, it spawned a term called bumping the lamp, and I don't know if you guys remember. But I actually watched this scene recently, and I'm still amazed at how how great it is. But there's a part where um, Eddie Valiant hits the lamp that's hanging from the ceiling, and the lamp sways, and the shadows on everything change. Roger's shadows move. The shadows move on Roger. And so the term bump of the lamp is just an animation term for the stupid amount of work that animators will go through to create a moment that nobody notices because it's done right. And I I think that actually goes to a lot of things that we do in general, where we do a lot of things that nobody notices, but we don't actually, you know, we don't really need anybody to notice, or at least the, the uh, emotionally sound. Those of us don't need anybody to notice, but Well, well, like we always talk about like, computer effects and computer generated stuff versus practical effects. Mm -hmm. And, all the animation in this film is hand drawn and Mm -hmm. to do those shadows and stuff was so meticulous. And does it look quote unquote realistic? No, it's live action and cartoon mixed together. It it looks beautiful. Like it's so well done. I would take that over, you know, some of the more polished stuff today every time. Yeah. No, it's uh, uh, in watching it uh, not too long ago. It was it was just still a bit mind blowing to me at how well they lined everything up and how well everything just kind of fell into place. So, in an original script, there was a, a sequence for Marvin Acme's funeral, and the attendees would include Foghorn Leghorn, Mickey and Minnie, Tom and Jerry, Chip and Dale, Felix the Cat, Mighty Mouse, Superman, Popeye and Olive Oil, the Seven Dwarves, Baby Huey, and Casper the Friendly Ghost. But uh, they could not get the rights to Baby Huey, Casper, Popeye. Yeah, they just couldn't get it, some of the rights to it. So they just kind of scrapped it because it was, you know, with the uh, the big end scene with all of the tunes in Toontown, it, it just it kind of would have been a bit much for them to do. On top of all of the other things. I mean, if they cut the vulture for Judge Doom, I, I can see why they would cut this. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Before finally agreeing on Who Framed Roger Rabbit as the film's title, working titles, Murder in Toontown, Toons, Dead Toons Don't Pay Bills, The Toontown Trial, Trouble in Toontown, and Eddie Goes to Toontown, which, sorry, but Dead Toons Don't Pay Bills, I think is a great title. Yeah, that's the one. I would have gone and saw it. That's the one. Yeah. But... Who Framed Roger Rabbit, I guess, fine, okay, but I want to see Dead Tunes Don't Pay Bills. <laughs> so That sounds like a film noir from yep. the 40s, mm-hmm. you know, it does. All right, so jumping into the filming of the movie now, 
So Williams admitted he was openly disdainful of the Disney bureaucracy and refused to work in Los Angeles. So Williams, the animation director. So production moved to England where a studio, Walt Disney Animation UK, was created. Still exists now, but it was only made for this. (laughs) So the production budget just started going up as soon as they started going overseas. It jumped from 30 million to 40 million. And the then CEO, Michael Eisner, who got the movie up and going again, considered shutting down production. But Jeffrey Katzenberg talked him out of it. Once again, fighting for the movie. But despite the budget going to over 50 million, Disney moved forward on production because uh, they were excited to work with Spielberg alone. Spielberg can make anything happen after reading all this. I mean, Spielberg <laughs> just, he's, he's great. So, all right. The cameras had uh, motion control for all the live action scenes, and it was to help just kind of create a smooth movement of the camera for for animation. Rubber models of Roger Rabbit, Baby Herman, and the Toon Patrol were placed during rehearsals to teach the actors where to look when acting with open air and imaginative cartoon characters. Because if you look, if you watch the movie, you can actually see Bob Hoskins and other character, other actors who are interacting with animated characters focus on nothing that's there. And so they had to train themselves to focus on the rubber, the the rubber thing that was there and then move for filming. Many of the live action props were held, uh, held by cartoon characters were actually shot on set. And the props were later animated being held like the guns. And actually, if you, the guns being woven around by the weasels in Eddie's apartment, but then one of the most impressive things to me about it, and you can actually find behind-the-scenes footage of this, but the Ink and Paint Club, like, they actually built a stage, uh, like, uh, up a good bit and had people underneath with poles, like, going back and forth, and that's where they animated the octopus bartender. And then, you know, they would have, like, a tray moving across, and then that's where you'd, like, see the penguin animated carrying the tray. And Uh it was just really, really cool to watch, like, the the behind-the-scenes stuff and then see all the animated things. Going along with that, did you see the stuff about Jessica Rabbit's dress? Yes. Okay. Yeah. No, go ahead. I mean, I, that was actually coming up, but no, no, if you've got it like written down, you can articulate it better than I can. No, um, actually, my only note on it is uh, that the sequence were actually one of the hardest, the sequence on her dress were one of the hardest things for them to actually animate because they had to actually create light that was reflected, real light reflected off of animation. Yeah, they they did something where they I think they took a model and they wrapped it in a certain kind of material with like glass or crystal or something to get that lighting effect. The part that still blows my mind to, to this day, 30 years later, is how they were using real world things for the shadows and lighting of the animated things. Like, yes. Yeah. It's I, crazy. I, I still don't fully understand that, but I I didn't come across anything that told me what those shadows were, but I tend to think that those shadows were actually like an animated thing along with it. And part of that is because of, of how this was done. So post-production and animation lasted for 14 months. All the animation was done using cells and optical compositing. The animators and layout artists were given black and white printouts of the live action scenes. They placed their animation paper on top of them. The artist drew 
the animated characters in relationship to the live-action footage. Zemeckis liked to move the camera. The challenge for the animators had the uh, uh, characters not slipping all over the place. And, uh, you know, so actually moving with the camera and, and the scene and not sliding around on the ground. Zemeckis and Spielberg came up with the idea that if the rabbit sits down on an old chair, dust comes up. He should always be touching something real. And so that's where we got a lot of the animated characters holding real objects or interacting with real objects. Yeah, the uh, the animated things that they the things the animators had to go through was was insane. So after that rough animation was complete, it was run through traditional animation until the cells were shot on the Rostam camera. A Rostam or Rostam? I can't. I I couldn't find an actual pronunciation of it. R O S T R U M. And there was no background. So it's a camera that's used to animate a still picture. It's most often used uh, to add interest to static objects. So you guys ever seen where there's like a, a picture and then like they'll kind of zoom into the picture and it'll kind of move a little bit. It's, it's, it's used in documentaries a lot. The animated footage was then sent to ILM where technicians um, and animators would put three layers of lighting, shadows, highlights, tones separately to make the cartoon look three-dimensional and get the characters shadows from lighting on set. So there you go. That's, that's how, that's the only thing I can really find to give me an explanation of how they did it. But am I satisfied? No, not at all. <laughs> I, I, I want to know more. Uh, the lighting effects were optically composited on the cartoon characters. And I would not normally use term, use words like optically composited together, but that is the technical words that were put together in this. And so for their credit, I'm doing it. All right. The cartoons were then put into the live action footage. One of the most difficult effects in the film was Jessica's dress for the nightclub scene because it had to flash the sequences as we were just talking about. Yeah. Those, those sequences were, were a pain in their ass. All right, fellas, we have rolled through, the movie monster you had something i wanted to bring up the nintendo game oh no frame roger rabbit no we're gonna get there in a second okay. we're gonna talk about that pain in the ass game cryptic you know. nonsense man all right <laughs> so michael eisner and roy e disney that he was chairman and then uh, i think he was uh son or grandson of walt himself felt the film was too risque had too many adult themes and sexual references. Hmm. One of your main characters. I wonder. <laughs> well, I mean, one of your main characters, Jessica Rabbit, of course it's going to. So Eisner and Zemeckis disagreed over different elements, but Zemeckis had final cut privilege of things. He would not change anything. Roy E. Disney, he was not only vice chairman, but he was also head of feature animation along with Jeffrey Katzenberg. That name just gets me. I feel like there should be an R in there. I feel like there should be like Kratzenberg or something. I don't know. I was going to say where? After the, Kratzenberg, after the, the R. Or I was going to say at the, the end. I was going to say at the very end, like Katzenberger. Um, no. <laughs> okay, fine. Whatever. All right. Anyway, so they decided to release it over at Touchstone, which is their more adult-oriented stuff. But this is actually the one of the two non-Disney movies that Disney actually claims. This and Nightmare Before Christmas. All right. So 
that budget went over 50 million. It went to 50.6 million. Wow. Yep. But the film opened United States, June 22nd, 1988. The first weekend, $11,226,239. In the U.S. and Canada together, $156,452,370. And internationally, $173,351,588. So a total of... $329.8 329.8 million on a 50.6 million dollar budget. And ladies and gentlemen, what do we call that? That's a return. An ROI. <laughs> that that is That's a return. ROI. So um yeah, I think I think they uh they made their money out of it. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. All right. Easily. Monster. We're gonna talk about the critical response of this movie. Sarge. Do you want to just take a, a a stab, a wild guess at what its score is on Rotten Tomatoes, the tomato meter? Well, considering how I don't even look at Rotten Tomatoes and don't know how Rotten Tomatoes scores things, I'm going to assume it's scored really low. No, no. It is a no. 97% certified fresh. It's actually one of the highest movies on Rotten Tomatoes. Nice. What, no. what I was, what I was uh, for people at home, I was doing a thumbs down because – I have a feeling, and I could be wrong, I have a feeling that this is one of those ones that when it came out, a lot of critics were kind of iffy on and has kind of become more beloved over time. But maybe I'm wrong. No, actually, a lot of critics loved it when it came out. So 97% by critics and then 85% by audience uh, scores. So, Monster. Spielberg bottom. Yeah. (laughs) So, Monster, our old buddy, our, our good friend, the... Greatest reviewer of all time, some oh, would say. God. A man of words, Mr. Roger Ebert. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. And I'm assuming he he probably said it was silly and no substance and four stars. Probably gave it like, hey, okay. Four, four, four out of four stars. He predicted it would carry, and I quote, the type of word of mouth that money can't buy. This movie is not only great entertainment, but also a breakthrough in craftsmanship. In evaluating their top 10 movies of the year, Siskel ranked at number two, while Ebert ranked at number eight. Still in the top 10, but yeah. Um, yeah. Roger Good Ebert. For him. He got it right once. Yeah, I know. I know. Janet Maslin over at the New York Times said, a film whose best moments are so novel and so deliriously funny and so crazily unexpected that they truly must be seen to believe. Mm-hmm. CNN on its nineteen or 2019 miniseries of movies, Tom Hanks called it most complicated movie ever made. Mm-hmm. Now, Mr. Scott Nash of Three Movie Buffs, large publication. No, it's not at all. But I was looking for a negative review. I wanted to find one. And Mr. Scott Nash came through in the clutch. (laughs) Apart from the interesting premise and the novelty of seeing so many famous cartoon characters together on the screen, I was overall disappointed and it completely failed to live up to my memory. (laughs) Oh, Mr. Scott Nash. All right. The success of the film, of the movie, it gained a uh, bunch more interest into the golden age of American animation as we talked about on uh, 1870 to 1900 and uh, gave birth to the Disney Renaissance in 1991. And that's where we started to see uh, Beauty and the Beast and all that stuff. 
Um, and Walt Disney Imagineering began developing Mickey's Toontown for Disneyland based on uh, Toontown in the movie. And the, uh, it, the attraction, Roger Rabbit's cartoon spin was over there. I never rode any of that. I never went to Disneyland. I always went to Disney World as a kid. My uncle worked at Disney World, so we, uh, we got in. My uncle would dress up as, uh, they had uh, men dress up as the uh, stepsisters from Cinderella. And he was one. <laughs> they did it so they didn't walk That's like awesome. women. Yep. <laughs> so three theatrical animated shorts they would show with different movies. Tummy Trouble uh, was shown before Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Roller Coaster Rabbit was shown before Dick Tracy. And Trail Mix-Up was shown before A Far Off Place. Now, Trail Mix-Up and Tummy Trouble were actually two of the uh, parts of the test footage they came up with early on. And actually, the Trail Mix-Up, the Jessica Rabbit as a park ranger was something they thought about putting into Roger Rabbit at one point. And then they nixed it because could you imagine Jessica Rabbit as anything other than the red sequence dress? Nah, Mm -hmm. I can't. All right. The movie also had a short-lived comic book and video game spinoffs. Two PC games, the Japanese version of the Bugs Bunny Crazy Castle, which features Roger instead of Bugs Bunny. Mm -hmm. A 1989 game, for the NES monster. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. I played that one a lot. And 91 uh, game on Game Boy. Now, monster, you, you feel, I feel like you have something to really, really say some uh, childhood emotions to share about this, this game. So I can clear as day in my head, hear the music on the start screen and it's catchy. And I loved it. And I can hear it clearly because I rented it from far more probably 25 times when I was a kid. I loved it. It was fun. I never got anywhere in it because it's hard as hell. And it's one of those games that if you don't know the cryptic bullshit that you need to know to progress, it's impossible. Yep. Uh, I've, I've brought up this channel before on YouTube, but uh, Angry Video Game Nerd does a couple episodes where he talks about it watch those and that he actually does like a walkthrough and actually gets through the entire game and it's pretty cool a lot of stuff i never saw because i couldn't get anywhere in it um i couldn't played the hell out of it for sure my favorite part was when you're eddie valiant roger rabbit's like following you around and you can like wind up your punch and just sock roger rabbit right in the head and his head spins around real fast that's the best part for sure. Yep. So do you remember in the game where Jessica Rabbit would give Eddie a phone number? Yep. yep. And at the time, if you dialed the 1-800 number, it would give you tips and tricks on how to play the game. That's not what it does now. Nope. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, so NES, the uh, the support hotline for the system was – the system was such a, a, a machine, a monster of a machine, it never failed. Um, until about 32 years later, and then you can't get your NES to work right. But uh, the number actually ended up becoming the number that people would call to get tricks or tips and stuff for the game. And so that was actually a number that actually just brought you to the same call line as as the uh, the main number. But you know, it was a, uh, it, I believe it actually was a after it was discontinued as part of the Roger Rabbit helpline. It then became a sex line, and then it just became, and then it became discontinued, like just 
you know, nothing. Now, when the movie was released on Laserdisc in 1994, if you guys remember Laserdiscs. Um, I remember Laserdiscs. Yes. Yeah. So, I know where this is going. Yeah. All right. <laughs> the movie would normally play at a rate of 24 frames a second. Laserdisc allowed people to slow it down. Now, Monster, what did people slow it down to see? There is a very famous scene where they are riding in the taxi. Taxi wrecks. Jessica Rabbit gets thrown out of the car, and she spins a couple times, and she's wearing that famous red sequence dress. So you better believe a bunch of dirty old rich pervs with laser discs were <laughs> going super slow-mo to see if they could see anything. And um, I've heard different stories about what you could and couldn't see during that part. Sarge, did you ever try to find it? Or are you going to try to find it now? <laughs> no, I've never fit. I never had the laser disc growing up. No, well, I mean, My school I had a laser disc. Yeah, and I'm sure the school would have loved for you to pop in Roger Rabbit. <laughs> no, like back okay. then it was a different time. Okay, it was a different time. It was. So I I did go online trying to find this, and I oh, was, I'm sure you did. I well, I was just genuinely curious about for it. Research, yes, for research. Duck, duck, go. Where are you? And so <laughs> I uh, I I did. I I tried to find it, and it actually became very difficult because there is so much just. Um, how do we say it? Fan porn of Jessica rabbit out there. And so I did end up finding that scene. And honestly, it doesn't look like anything to me. It looks like uh, the animators were just animating and there just happened to be this one part, like three, three frames where, I mean, if that, where you kind of see maybe a, uh, um, like uh, her skin tone in that area, but there's no vagina. There's there's no labia. There's there's nothing. Oh my it's, god! Did you but, did you have to break out the biological terms? I mean, uh, what would you want me to say? There was no animated wizard sleeve. Okay. Anyway, moving on. So retailers, okay. <laughs> you either edit all of that out or you edit all of me speaking. Cause I don't want to be associated with this. <laughs> so, so retailers, uh, retailers said that, um, their inventory would sell out in minutes because it was, you know, fueled by media and whatnot, that this was something that could be done that, you know, people could slow it down and see Jessica rabbits, hoo ha. And, but it's never actually been confirmed that that's what's there. And, kind of an urban legend. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the other thing that came out of the movie was when Donald Duck and Daffy Duck, Donald and Daffy Duck are doing their piano dueling. And in, uh, in Donald's uh, ranting gibberish, it was said that uh, he was, he, you know, and you could kind of hear it listening to the movie. Uh, he said um, he called him a GD stupid N word. The script said doggone stubborn little and never actually says anything, but people got all up in arms because they were like, Donald says these things and he didn't say them. So it's Donald duck. You can't understand anything he's saying anyway. Right. 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 <laughs> so, all right. To, uh, to close it out, I want to talk about the, uh, the proposed sequel. Do you guys know that there was actually a sequel in the works at one point? No. Yeah. It was actually going to be a prequel. 
is going to begin with Roger on the farm. This is going to be uh, set in 1941. And this is one of the reasons why I'm a little unsure of what year it is. And I just said in the beginning, it's 1940s. Set in 1941. Roger's on the farm. He's living with Richie Davenport. And uh, so Roger and Richie go to see Roger's mother. But along the way, Jessica Krupnik, later Jessica Rabbit, she's a struggling Hollywood actress. She gets kidnapped. Well, that's happening while Roger and Richie are enlisting in the army. And uh, Jessica, in being kidnapped and being held, she is forced to listen to may or listen to and make pro-Nazi broadcasts. So Roger and Richie must save her by going to Nazi-occupied Europe with several other tunes in their army platoon. Now, a subplot of this is how the U.S. government is sending tunes overseas to go fight because tunes can't be killed by bullets. They can have fridges dropped on their heads. Not kill. It's just acetone. <laughs> it's just Apparently. it's just the dip. That would be chemical warfare. So after their triumph of taking down Nazi occupied Europe, Roger and Richie are given a Hollywood Boulevard parade, and Roger is finally reunited with his mother and father. Do you want to guess who his father is? Oh, it's Bugs Bunny. It's Bugs Bunny. No. Yeah. What? Yeah. Oh. That, according to this script that was written and was actually kind of moving forward a bit. So. But Bugs is in the first one. As, I know. Like. I, I know. Mm, yeah. That would have been awful. Yeah. It went. Still better love story than Twilight. Yeah. Fair enough. And for the record, the idea of Roger Rabbit going all in Glorious Bastard style. I'm not against that. Yeah, I'd, I'd go watch that. Oh, yeah, I would watch. I, I would watch Roger Rabbit be the bear Jew, and you know, hit his bat Roger against Rabbit the, killing Nazis. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd like to see Roger Rabbit as uh, Brad Pitt's character with a little mustache, yeah. mm-hmm. tucking his top lip in to talk. <laughs> <laughs> Sound so, good. So anyway, the. Um, uh, production on the the sequel was uh, slowed down dramatically when uh, Bob Hoskins died, and uh, he retired in 2012 because he diagnosed Parkinson's. Then he died in 2014, and the last thing that was really said about it was in 2018, Zemeckis uh, said in an interview with Yahoo Movies that the script sequel or the sequel's script was wonderful. Disney is unlikely to ever produce it. And he does not see the possibility of producing it as an original film for Disney Plus, as he feels it does not make any sense, as there is no princess in it. All right. Ooh, shots fired. Yep. Yeah. Mm. So that is uh, that is Roger Rabbit. But one of the things that they did not do in the movie was show where Roger Rabbit ran in a race. And I recently ran in a race, and I lost. So I went to the doctor, went to a podiatrist. And he said it was because of defeat. Okay. Well, I had a picture of my favorite cartoon rabbit. But when I came home one day, someone encased it in glass and hung it up. Who framed Roger Rabbit? Nice. Hmm. Yeah. Bringing that title back. I, I like, I like yeah. applaud you guys for finding jokes based on what we're doing. I mean, I really, <laughs> really do. I mean, that, those are really good jokes no actually I mean, mine, mine mine had nothing to do with it i just made mine work for it <laughs> oh wow well it's like how I, I i 
if I have a shirt that is applicable to the topic, I will wear that shirt, hmm. but no one sees my shirt. So it's, it doesn't have the same effect. <laughs> See, my, my, my jokes just aren't going to compare. Like here, here you go. Who's the most popular guy at the nudist colony? The man that can carry a cup of coffee in each hand and a dozen donuts. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so pretty good. Talking about food and drink. The, uh, the lady asked me to pick up six cans of Sprite from the store. And when I got home, I realized pick seven up. <laughs> oh. And then for dinner, I made a salad. She said it was a bit dry. I said it needs a dressing. What do you call an illegally parked frog? I don't know. Toad. Toad. Yeah, I should have. <laughs> I should. I should have felt that. All right. So, so ready, guys? Ready? Yeah. This is a conversation that uh, that happened. I'm so wet. Give it to me now. Give it to me now. Give it to me now. No matter how much he yelled, I wasn't giving up my umbrella. <sighs> I hate that I laughed Good at that. One. I, I yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'll admit it. I'll admit it. I have a hell of a sex drive. I have to drive forty minutes to get to my girlfriend's house. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Your wife will love to hear that one. <laughs> <laughs> How do you make a pool table laugh? Tickle its balls. Yep. Yep. It was. I, it was right there. That's gonna get. Anyway. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening. Do appreciate you coming back. Please shoot us a uh, message on uh, Twitter, Danger and Sarge. Find us on Facebook, Danger and Sarge, or shoot us an email at dangerandsarge at gmail.com. Please send us a, a suggestion of what you'd like for us to talk about. We may have to wait for that letter to come around and uh, yeah, and, and, and recording. But, hey, but we're getting near the end of this season, so we're about to have a clean slate. Thank you for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. If you're listening to this of the day, rest of your evening, if it's that time, whatever. Bye. <laughs> Later. Later. It's over. Done. Done.